Hello, listeners. Yoel here. Just a quick note about the episode you're about to hear. This episode is about the recent events at the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science, centering around the dismissal of that journal's former editor-in-chief, Klaus Fiedler, over allegations of racism and abuse of editorial power in his handling of some commentary on a paper by Stephen Roberts and colleagues. Uh, so Alexa and I had a little bit of a disagreement about this episode. Uh, basically, I wanted to talk about these events, and she didn't. So what I did is I asked a special guest co-host to join us. That's Rachel Hartman, co-host of the podcast, More of a Comment Than a Question. Alexa asked me uh, to read this uh, statement that she wrote about her feelings about the question. So here it is. In Roberts's commentary, he describes how his experiences demonstrate, quote, an intellectual echo chamber in which a single worldview held by the majority group, in this case, the editors, reviewers, and authors, formalizes itself in the permanent scientific record under the guise of a scientific debate, end quote. He calls on psychological science to, quote, acknowledge that editors as well as reviewers and authors are in an epistemological gatekeeping position from which to govern what is and what is not worthy of publication, end quote. In the time since Robert's posted his commentary, the conversation has shifted away from his original concerns and towards issues of procedural fairness surrounding a senior white editor's dismissal. For these reasons, it didn't feel right to me to do a podcast episode focusing on Fiedler's resignation. The issue that Roberts brings up in his 2020 paper and his recent commentary are ones that deserve thoughtful discussion by all scholars in our field, but the way that those discussions are facilitated matters. With respect to our podcast, I don't think we can do this topic justice without the input of scholars of color, something we plan to do in a future episode. So that's the end of Alexa's statement. So uh, we are going to do a, a future episode digging more into the details uh, around the issues that the original Roberts paper that was being critiqued raised. Uh, so that's coming. But in the meantime, I did think it was useful and interesting to talk about just what happened in this case and why. Uh, so no worries. Alexa and I are cool. We'll be back together in the next episode. For this episode, I'm going to be joined by Rachel Hartman. So enjoy. Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here today is a special guest co-host, Rachel Hartman. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We have a ton of stuff we want to talk about, but first, as always, we need to talk about beers. So Rachel, as a special guest co-host, you get to go first. Okay, so I don't want to get canceled before we even start to talk about the content but I don't like beer. Oh God, we get so much <laughs> shit about this. And I was hoping for once we I could know. have somebody who would, okay, well, sorry, but, go on. Okay, so I was going to have wine, but then I really wanted to like have the sound effect of opening a can. Yeah. So I got this, it is called Day Drinking by Little Big Town. And it's a Rosé Bubbles wine spritzer. I have not had it before. <laughs> Okay. So our last guest, I don't know if you listened to that episode, was drinking kombucha. So I feel like you're a step up from that, at least. It's real. I mean, it has like 12% alcohol content. That's so. serious. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you're, you're at like twice the ABV that I am. So I've mentioned this brewery 
uh, before there are a little microbrewery, Montreal microbrewery, that is literally downstairs in our building. Uh, and I picked up some of their latest things. So the first thing I'm going to try is a rice beer called uh, Fleur et Cadeau, which means uh, flowers and uh, presents, which is a nice name for a beer, I think. Um, yeah. All right. Well, shall we get that sound effect? Yeah, let's do it. Mm, how is it? Um, yeah, it's pretty good. I have to get used to it. Um, okay, well, it's kind of like, uh, I, like it's it's different. I don't know if I'm tasting. <laughs> you are really you are not selling this whatsoever. I know. Um, yeah, I think it's just I can't t- like it doesn't taste like wine, but it also doesn't taste like anything else. Huh. Does it, so, can you, can you liken it to any other tastes? I think it, <laughs> I think it tastes a little bit like beer, which now I'm starting to think that beer just tastes like can. Oh. Which is actually a realization that I had about canned salmon that tastes just like canned tuna. And I'm yep. like, it's just yep. a can flavor. It's just a can taste. Yeah. Huh. So, so maybe you just hate can taste is what you're saying. Maybe. But I don't know. I don't like bottled beer either. So yeah, right. I was about it. to ask. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that seems like a bit of a miss. Um, I like my rice beer. It's nice. It's a nice, like, light, you know, one to start with. And then I'm going to go to something heavier. I've never had a rice beer before. Maybe that's, maybe I should try that. Mm, have you had, like, sake or anything like that? Like a rice wine? Yeah. I like sake. Tastes like sake. You should try it. I'll try it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So we've got a, a ton to talk about. Um, and I'm hoping to set this up for listeners, not all of whom are psychologists in a way that makes sense and uh, doesn't assume knowledge and uh, doesn't use acronyms that people don't know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start basic. And Rachel, I'm hoping that you can help me out if you uh, hear me sort of like slipping into jargon or stuff that, you know, outsiders to the field aren't going to get. Uh, so basically, this is a story about the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science. Uh, that's one of the psychological science family of journals published by APS, the Association for Psychological Science. And uh, Psych Science is, I would say, like one of the top empirical journals psychology-wide. And Perspectives is, as it's often called, um, is, I would say it's like a well-respected journal that focuses more on commentary than on like original empirical work, but does publish some empirical stuff as well or, or did in the past. So like, I, I think of it as a good outlet. I have some papers there that I was happy to get accepted. Like I think of it as like high prestige. Is that that how you think of it as well, Rachel? I don't, as a lowly grad student, I haven't yet really developed good intuitions about, you know, what, I mean, you know, there's like JPSV, which is the flagship journal of the personality, social psychology, I can't say that, um, but yeah, like there's like the big ones and obviously like I've heard of perspectives on psychological science before, but I don't, I haven't developed like good intuitions about what each journal means and like how prestigious is it to publish there and, you know. I see. Um, I see. Well, that's good. I mean, maybe try not to learn that stuff because I, <laughs> it's a little bit of a toxic mentality, right? Although I'm disappointed that you're not familiar with my multiple publications in that high profile and impressive journal. So, Well, the other thing, yeah. I mean, I also like when I read articles, I just read the title of the article and, you know, the like first author, I almost never look at where it was actually published. And wow. like, yeah. 
and then everyone's like, oh, you know, have you read like the this and this article like from this journal? And I'm like, I don't know. I've, I don't know which journal it was in. Yeah, that's so. well, I mean, I feel like that's much better, actually. Um, so when I was in grad school, like it would be normal if somebody is like, oh, I, I had a paper come out. The first thing you would ask is in what journal? Mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy, right? Like, shouldn't it be like, well, what's it called or what's it about? It's like, no, wh- yeah. where? So you know how excited to be for them. And then if they're like, you know, psych science, you're like, wow, great. Um, and then if they're like, no, I'm not going to name the low tier journal. If they're like some <laughs> other journal, you might be like, oh, that's nice. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah, I still get that, you know, a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, but but not really what we should be doing. Okay. All right. It's been like two minutes and we're already <laughs> off track. Anyway. So this is a story about perspectives on psychological science or perspectives as it's known. So about almost exactly a year ago, uh, Klaus Fiedler, who's a well-known uh, German social cognitive psychologist, took over as editor-in-chief of that journal. And perspectives is a little unusual in that the EIC has a lot of leeway in de- determining like what, what to publish, how to shape the journal. Um, I think of it as something that's like really an expression of the um, editor's preferences more so than than many other journals. Um, and that's going to become important in a minute. So he was actually the first non-North American EIC at any of the APS journals ever. Um, so that was kind of a big deal. Uh, and they thought of that, I think, uh, as a deliberate choice to kind of diversify the um the editorship in that way. And uh, he he was editor-in-chief this last year, and he recently accepted a commentary on a paper that was published in Perspectives under the previous editor, Laura King. Uh, and that paper is called Racial Inequality and in Psychological Research, Trends of the Past and Recommendations for the Future uh, that was published by uh, Stephen Roberts et al. Okay, so this is the that's the paper that this new paper that he accepted is uh, sort of commenting on, uh, and that uh, that uh, critique or, or commentary that uh, Fiedler accepted is called "Dealing with Diversity in Psychology, Science or Ideology" uh, by is his name Bertrand or Bernard Hummel. Do you remember? (laughs) This is so bad. I just like, he's a cognitive guy. I didn't, I didn't uh, know him. Um, Anyway, Hummel is the, uh, the author uh, of this critique. And uh, on December 2nd, so that's uh, a little more than two weeks ago now, uh, Roberts posted a preprint to SciArchive, which is our field wide preprint server um, describing his experience being asked to write uh, a response uh, to this commentary. And this preprint, it had kind of an introductory section that's like, here's all the stuff that happened. Um, and then it had the the response itself. And this preprint caused an incredible stir. So this came out uh, Friday the uh, the 2nd. That same day, there was uh, an open letter posted demanding that Fiedler be fired. uh, And this letter started, the racism, general editorial incompetence, and abuse of power enacted against one of our colleagues is atrocious. So this is describing the editorial process. 
uh, on December 2nd, so that same day, that same Friday, uh, APS, the Association for Psychological Science, uh, released a statement. APS is aware of the significant concerns shared by Stephen O. Roberts about racist and biased editorial practices, a perspectives on psychological science. That's just an excerpt that goes on. Uh, on Monday, so that's the, the, the fifth, the following Monday, uh, the APS board meets and demands that Fiedler resign. Uh, so this is now three days after that preprint has been posted. Uh, December 6th, uh, Tuesday, uh, Fiedler does resign. On the 8th, Wednesday, APS describes uh, releases a brief uh, statement describing the resignation, which basically just says, uh, we met, we decided that uh, we wanted the guy out, and uh, we demanded his resignation, and he resigned. And on the uh, 15th, uh, so that's then 10 days after that, uh, APS released a longer statement, which we'll get into, uh, justifying the firing and, and uh, describing more of their kind of reasons that they thought that it was justified. So that was that's kind of a big gap, right? Um, they moved very quickly uh, to get rid of them. And then it took a while. And the statement that they eventually released saying, here's why, had a little bit of a, to me, grudging tone of like, okay, you guys have been asking for details now. Now I'll tell you why. Uh, so overall, uh, very quick process uh, to fire this guy who was the EIC of one of the flagship journals in psychology. So I thought that first we could talk about what did Roberts describe? Like, what is the process that he uh, found troubling enough to write this very unusual preprint, basically accusing Fiedler of treating him unfairly? What happened there? So, Rachel, do you want to take a little bit of this of just describing like, okay, what was his experience there like and what what's your reaction to that experience? Yeah, I can, I'll do my best. But first, uh, I just want to clarify or ask you a clarifying question about um, being fired, because I feel like there was a little bit of back and forth about this on Twitter. And people who aren't in the field probably don't know, not to mention lowly grad students, but like, for editors in chief, like, is it a real job? Did he get paid? What is it like? You know, he's not being fired from his position as a professor. So. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, at APS journals, you do get a stipend. Uh, so they give you some amount of cash. Um, but really, you know, it's not like Klaus Fiedler needs the APS money. Like that might be, I don't know. I mean, I'm just a lowly AE at Psych Science and they give me, I think, 8,000 US a year, which which is not nothing, right? So as EIC, you probably get more than that. Maybe you get like, and maybe you get some support for staff or something. I'm sure that varies across journals. But so like, let's say maybe they paid him 10 to 20,000, which is, you know, non-zero, but not going to break somebody. But really it's that it's, you know, a pr prestigious position that it's an honor to have. And it's a, obviously a dishonor to be fired from. So really the, the main consequences are reputational, not financial. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to understand what, what exactly um, people meant by fired. Um, but yeah, so, okay. I feel like this is, it's so complicated, like the details of what actually happened there. And in the preprint that Roberts posted, he also posted like the emails that went back and forth. And I read all those emails and I was like confused and, you know, there was like a lot. But basically, my understanding is that um, Hummel wrote this uh, commentary and then Fiedler wanted to get reviews on that commentary. And so he reached out to 
three reviewers who were all like gave positive reviews of uh, Hummel's paper and they were so positive and so according to Fiedler um you know well thought out and uh, sort of like had such good points that he invited them to actually publish these reviews or you know edit them a little bit but publish them as additional commentaries so then um instead of it being like peer review in the traditional sense where you would get like comments and then revise your paper based on those comments it was more of like three more people were jumping on board saying like yeah this is great and you know adding maybe a few more thoughts of their own um and then then there was some back and forth about like well is which like which article is the target article here is it Hummel's article or is it Roberts's original article um and who gets to have the last word because like usually i guess if it's the target what whoever has the target article gets to have the final word at the end um and Roberts this is where it gets a little hazy i think um so Roberts w was invited to write a response to all of, all four of the critiques basically Hummel's and then the three of you reviewers um but then his response was supposed to just like go through Fiedler and not be like peer reviewed because it was sort of like an invited response but then Fiedler sent it to Hummel so it's like Hummel is like commenting on a critique of his critique and Roberts didn't think that was fair um and then was going to uh, withdraw his uh commentary and then I, I'm a little unclear about like he did withdraw it but then he decided not to but then he posted the preprint do you know like is it going to be published or yeah so god knows what's going to happen to this set of papers right I would be super surprised if uh the Hummel piece and the commentaries on the Hummel piece except for Roberts's got published at all um it kind of feels more like they're just going to can the whole thing my understanding was that Roberts basically said, I'm going to walk, you know, I don't like this process, uh, I withdraw. And Fiedler came back to him and said, no, 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 I really like your commentary, you know, please reconsider. And he did. And he said, okay. And then at some point he decided to post this um, on SciArchive with this, you know, uh, description of the events uh, prepended to it which is a little bit of a change of heart, right? It obviously shows you're not happy with the process um, and you want to draw attention to the way that you think you've been badly treated. So I don't know what happened there, whether he changed his mind again or or what, but I, I do think that uh, he, at first, in response to getting this like list of notes from, from Hommel, said, I'm not going to do this. And then he reconsidered and said, okay, no, I will, in response to Fiedler being like, please do. And then the preprint was posted. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't know. My from reading through the emails, it seemed like Fiedler was not he like the emails were a lot less professional than I would have expected from an editor in chief. Just like I don't know. Um, and and like like Roberts was asking very clear questions like what's going to happen with this like what you know what's the plan here and then just not getting responses although i don't know if he actually posted like the full email because it wasn't like screenshots it was just copy pasted text so maybe 
but it just seemed like like he wasn't like being competent really that that was that was my main uh impression i don't think he was being racist um but you know obviously that's controversial but yeah it mostly like my main takeaway from reading uh robert's like whole narrative and then the emails themselves was just like this guy made a mistake and fiddler i mean and um didn't doesn't seem to like be doing his job super well um and yeah that's that's pretty much it yeah so compared to review processes that you've been through like how weird did this seem to you well i mean i haven't really like had this kind of back and forth before like my experience with peer review i only have a few articles published and my experience has been like I'll, I'll submit a paper i'll get back a email with the like editor's comments basically saying like you know i sent it out to a few reviewers here's what they said and uh revise and resubmit or you know and then there's just like the reviewers comments are pasted and then I revise the paper and submit it and it gets accepted or, you know, more revisions, but like, there's none of this like conversation about process or like any of that. And, and it's all very, like, seems to be like by the book, like you send it out to reviewers, get back the comments and just like, yeah. yeah. I think perspectives is a little unusual in that, this doesn't apply so much to the current case, but often you submit a proposal first and there's some negotiation sometimes about like, oh, well, you know, I don't like the way you proposed this, but I might be open to that, like with the editor. And then I've also just personally experienced not under Fiedler, but under a previous editor, just some weirdness where it seemed like the editor's personal opinion was being injected a lot into the review process. Like they specifically had this kind of... um idea about how the paper should look and really insisted on that. Um, also some weirdness about, you know, something was like marked as a minor revision, which, you know, typically means do these couple things and you're all set. And then it gets changed. Like we sent in that minor revision and then the editor comes back and is like, actually, no, I'm still upset about this. And now it's a major revision and I'm not sure I'm going to publish it at all. So it just seems like, I, I don't know if this is just a perspectives thing, but like, I've had weird experiences there too, and under under previous editorship. So I, I'm not quite sure what's going on with that journal. And maybe if it's just inherent to this format where it's more opinion pieces, commentaries, there's kind of more room for subjective judgment. And the EIC is just has their hands in these decisions more. Like at, at Psych Science, you know, once the paper's we decide to send it out for review, it's on the AE. You know, it's not that like the editor in chief is going to jump in there and be like, oh, I want you to do this, right? They delegate. And here it seems like the process is pretty different. Um, so I guess that's just to say, I can see how somebody would find this like really off putting. Um, and uh, I think one of the most off putting things is being sent this like long list of notes from the person who published the paper criticizing you, like about your commentary, and then getting this like, not very clear. Like, I feel like as an editor, you really have to give clear advice and sending a long list of notes and being like, well, do what you want with this, but I'll be reading over your response. It's like, what do I, does that mean I have yeah. to like, you know, like I, I have to address all these points or I could 
tell him to get lost or something in between? Like, who knows? Um, and and so I can see why at that point you would just want to pull the thing and be like, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I think it, it just, it seems like such a bad experience. And, you know, publishing is stressful. And they're also like the whole thing seems to be on a pretty tight deadline like everything's like you know we're trying to get it done within six weeks and like obviously it's been longer than that but yeah it's just it it does it seems like like if I was in Robert's situation I would be really annoyed and mad about the whole thing and just like want something to be done about it yeah yeah I I think one other important thing to throw in here though is like this experience of perspectives that I had this back and forth, we really wanted that paper to get published there. Like it was um, important to us. We thought perspectives was a good journal for it and we weren't sure where else we could send it. So we were really on the hook there to like do what the editor wanted. We were very motivated. In Roberts's case, he has tenure at Stanford and this is just a response to a commentary on him, right? So if he's like, screw you, I'm taking my ball and going home and post it on SciArchive, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'd rather have it in the scientific record, but I feel like it's not as much of a loss for him as for somebody who's like really trying to get a paper that's important for their CV published there. Like he doesn't need the publication is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I think he probably got more people to read it, posting it the way he did than he would have otherwise. Yeah. Apparently this like literally broke SciArchive. Like their site went down because so many people were trying to read this paper. Okay, yeah. so maybe what we can talk about next is just the justifications that APS gave um, for demanding his resignation. We can sort of um, go through those and see what we think of them, and then we can talk about kind of more broadly the reaction from the field, the various open letters that have circulated, and so on. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. All right, so here are this is from APS's statement of December 15th so that's uh 10 days after the board meeting uh so they say the editorial actions that raised concerns include the EIC's so Fiedler's decisions to one accept an article criticizing the original original article um so that's the Roberts piece is the original article here based on three reviews that were also critical of the original article it did not reflect a representative range of views on the topic of the original article two Invite the three reviewers who review the critique favorably to themselves submit commentaries on the critique. Three, accept those commentaries without submitting them to peer review. And four, inform the author of the original article that his invited reply would also not be sent out for peer review. The EIC then sent that reply to be reviewed by the author of the critical article to solicit further comments. That's Hummel, uh, the, uh, the reviewer. Um, Together, these behaviors represent a violation of proper editorial conduct and practices, which APS is committed to upholding regardless of the topic of the research. Okay, so what do you make of those justifications? I think these are all bad things that Fiedler did. But I mean, bad, I mean, like, I don't know what his intentions were. I think that they, his, these decisions were probably tainted by his ideological perspective um and, and or his incompetence like I, I don't know you know um that being said I think these are all like concerning things that need to be addressed I don't think that they necessarily need like that 
that means they need to fire him. Like, I feel like everything is like goes from like zero to a hundred, like so fast. And like, there's little, so little room for, for nuance and for people to like make a mistake and then learn from it and like improve, you know, like you could, like, this could have been a conversation with Fiedler saying like, Hey, you know, it's really not okay to do this kind of thing. And he's like, Oh, I didn't like, I didn't realize, or like, yeah, I, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, whatever it could have been like a bunch of different things, but instead it was just like, okay, you did this bad. You're fired. Yeah. So important to note here, uh, Fiedler says that he was never asked to explain himself. APS said that they did contact him. Uh, so I don't quite know how to explain that disparity, except for maybe APS asked, you know, are these emails authentic? Um, do they omit any important context and something like that? Uh, but didn't ask him, hey, what were you thinking? So that might, might be one reason, one way to resolve those kind of um, seemingly contradictory accounts. But anyway, by Fiedler's account, he was not asked to explain himself. In the way that you might expect, if these are like colleagues that you've been working together for a year, they might be like, hey, what's going on here? Why did you decide to do this? Um, rather than, you know, immediately uh, firing you. Um, yeah, so I uh, I agree that particularly taken together, these are bad. Um, I do think that sort of the original sin here is putting together like a group of commentaries that is so kind of monolithic in their opinion. Like you're going to get basically four people who are going to say that this original paper is problematic, and then you're only going to get Roberts to respond. And that doesn't seem like a very enlightening uh, set of papers to me. Like I would like to hear from some more of the people who think that Roberts's paper is good. And there's plenty of people out there that are like not hard to find. Um, so I think just as like, not even as a matter of like process fairness in the review process, as a matter of like, what do I want to read? Like, I want to read some interesting opinions on all sides, not just a bunch of people who all think the same thing, more or less. So that to me seems like kind of baffling. Like, how do you put this together and not think, hey, we should get more people who hold the opposing view to write something? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like an interesting like question. I feel like like with the original Roberts paper, there were several authors on there, right? It wasn't yeah. just Stephen Roberts. That's right. And there was like several points made in that article. And then in the commentaries, there, now we're talking about like four separate people and a bunch of points like spread across four different papers, but they could have just as easily been like four authors on one paper that's critiquing Roberts. And like, would that have been more acceptable? Do you think like, I feel like it would have been we would have one article, you know, Roberts position with a bunch of authors, one article anti Roberts with a bunch of authors, and then Roberts responding to that, like, that seems normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Right. So if they team up to write a paper and Roberts gets to respond to it yet, yeah, somehow there seems to be some amount of vote counting implicitly like, oh, it's four on one and that's not really fair. Um, but I think that's a good point. Like if they just wrote one longer paper that was like had all of them and then Roberts responded, that would have seemed more reasonable. I think given that you are getting four different people to write four different papers, it seems reasonable to say, well, we want to hear some from some more people on the other side. I mean, I guess equivalently, you could be like, well, Roberts could invite some people to join him and like, you know, make the case in different ways that they want to. 
but yeah, to, to me, the, the idea of like not getting some takes from, uh, the other side or people who have different opinions, I think is a real just kind of missed opportunity. The other stuff that's mentioned here, I'm I'm a little less sold on this being, well, like, let's say that all of this is correct. Like how unusual or um, egregious are these things? So I, I think that the the idea that the three reviewers all liked the paper it really depends on how those reviewers were selected and if he had good reasons for picking those people. So yeah, if he picks three people who he knows are going to love the paper where basically he's stacking the deck, that's really bad. Um, but I'm not sure that that was his intent. And he did in fact ask Roberts to review the paper as well. Roberts declined because he was on sabbatical. So that at least shows to me some effort at getting opposing takes. Um, and he might have had reasons that to him seem perfectly legitimate for picking these three people. We don't know. That's one of the things you could have asked him yeah. if you were asking him to, to right to to justify his decision making. Do you know? Like, I think everyone know who everyone who's like in the know knows that Lee Jessam would be. You know, we we all know what Lee Jessam would think about it. Lee yeah. Jessam was one of the um, reviewers slash commenters. But the other two people, Stanovich and I don't remember who the third one was. Strobe. Strobe. Um, I I don't I've never heard anything about their like political leanings or like thoughts about diversity or any of that. Have you? Like, do they have a reputation? No, no, not not that I've heard about at all. Um, so I was kind of thinking of like, why would you ask these people to review? And one possibility is that you, as an old senior person, secretly know that they're, you know, anti-diversity and that therefore you choose them to review. That's sort of the sinister take. The less sinister take is, well, one of the things that the homo critique raised is this idea about base rates and what like rate of uh, representation should you expect across demographic groups among um, authors, editors-in-chief, and so on. Um, and Stanovich is a well-known JDM person who, if you're like, evaluate this argument about base rates, he'd be a person I might think of. Um, likewise, uh, the Hummel critique talks about generalizing from a non-representative sample, right? And this idea of depending on whether you're talking about mechanism or moderators, you know, you have to think about, uh, generalizing from non-representative samples in different ways. And Strobe definitely has an opinion about that. It's an opinion that I personally think is wrong, but he's definitely somebody is known to have like thought about that and, you know, expressed himself about that publicly. So then you might be like, oh yeah, this like, you know, generalization thing, Strobe would be a smart person to ask about that. So there, there are possibly defensible reasons for choosing this set of reviewers. That said, they're all older senior white dudes, right? And, and to an American um, who's steeped in sort of this progressive idea of like identity is really important, that would probably raise some red flags, right? You're like, ah, oh, no, this is a really like, unrepresentative group of reviewers and we got to get some people who don't who have a different demographic profile uh i doubt that fiedler would have thought of that um and i i think that's a kind of a cultural difference between europeans and americans some americans that we should get into um that may have played into this so maybe um we go on to the remaining sins here uh the second is inviting people who wrote reviews to submit commentaries. 
That struck me as super weird, but I've since learned that it's actually not that uncommon. So I was told by somebody that it's happened at Perspectives before. Uh, apparently it happens uh, at Psych Inquiry, um, not uncommonly. So uh, I, I don't know whether it's typically that you ask all the reviewers to turn their reviews into commentaries, but it's at least not um, unheard of or something that he just made up. Uh, the idea that those commentaries then were not peer-reviewed. So that's something that on Twitter I saw people really getting upset about, um, particularly uh, Laura King said, that's unheard of at Perspectives. Um, Linda Skitka said, that's really like that in and of itself. It just shows total incompetence. So in 2012, I had a paper come out in Perspectives, co-authored with Joris Lammers, where there were commentaries on it. And I didn't think that those got peer-reviewed. And I reached out to a couple of the authors uh, on those commentaries. One said, no, it wasn't peer-reviewed at all. The other said, I think one of the other commentary writers looked over it. So that's basically equivalent to what he did here, is he had those commentaries sent around to the group for, for comments. So again, I mean, you could say, well, the problem is that they're not going to disagree with each other, and therefore you're not going to get critical comments. But the the idea that you know, you wouldn't send a commentary out for review isn't crazy. BBS also doesn't send commentaries out for review. Now, there might be now a written policy that says at perspectives, you know, everything must be sent out for review. Um, if so, they haven't said, right? So I'm just saying it's a little bit murkier than you, maybe you might think. Um, and the fourth, uh, the the business about sending the uh, the Roberts response to Hommel for notes. So in the case where we were the target article, we did get sent all the commentaries. And the editor asked us, do you see anything wrong with these commentaries? Slash, do you want to write a response? It's sort of up to you. Um, and we, you know, mostly didn't see anything. There were uh, a few points in one commentary where we were like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. And we communicated those to her. And she said, okay, I'll talk to the author of that commentary about this one point that I think is, you know, maybe just a factual misunderstanding that's important. So, you know, we weren't crazy people, and therefore we did not send a, like, two-page list of things that we demanded changes about. And the editor, I think, was more clear with the author of the commentary to say, like, well, here's this one factual thing. Tell me what you think. But this process of saying, hey, original author, you get to see the commentaries and give me any notes on them is also not unheard of at Perspectives, right? It's just that it seems like it was handled in a really bad way that made Roberts think that he all of a sudden has this hostile reviewer that he has to deal with. So I, yeah. I guess I feel like individually, each of these pieces don't seem that norm violating to me. It's just when they're all put together and combined with the fact that like all of these people who are reviewing slash commenting kind of are on the same team, if you will, like to put it crudely, that mm -hmm. kind of like moves it to being um, possibly objectionable. Yeah. I mean, I think also the fact that there was this confusion about who's the target article, like the whole time, like, I think Roberts kind of thought that his was the target article. And like, it seemed like Fiedler was trying to frame it so that Hummel was the target article. So then it's like, like what you were saying, you know, you being the target article, you got to look at the commentaries that would like, if you don't think that you, if like, if you think that you're the target article or not, is going to change sort of like how you, take comments on your article, right? Yeah, and you might feel entitled to have the last word if you think you're the target article and not 
if you don't. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a it's a funny like just difference in perception. To me, it's pretty obvious that the original Roberts paper is a target article. I mean, the Hummel thing essentially is like, I'm going to tell you the different reasons I think this Roberts article is bad, right? So mm-hmm. like to say, no, no, it's the Hummel piece. I, like, I, don't, I don't buy that. I mean, but, you know, people have different perceptions. It's like, that's, that's something where I'm like, well, do I see malice in that? Or is that just like, I would not have that opinion. And that seems weird to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think Roberts is, Roberts has the original article, but I, who knows? Okay. So that's the, the stuff about, you know, the kind of substantive things that APS shared and uh, I guess our evaluation of them. The stuff that's obviously hanging in the background here is the um, identity angle, which is these commenters and Hummel are all uh, senior white men. And Roberts is, well, I mean, he's tenured, but he's younger and he's multiracial. And so they're was threaded through this, this idea that his treatment was racist. So he said this in his, uh, that is, Roberts said this um, in his uh, response. Uh, So he said, and to be clear, as I address in detail below, these accusations were collectively unsound, unscientific, ad hominem, and uh, racist. So that he's referring to the critiques of his article. Um, The uh, APS first statement that they released referred to racist and biased editorial practices. And the uh, open letter that called for Fiedler's firing talked about racism, general editorial incompetence, and abuse of power. So this racism angle, what do you make of it? It depends on how you define racism, which is such a thorny issue. Um, I'll say a little bit, I think, like, I'll try not to get too much off topic, but I think that there is so much disagreement about what's considered racist in this country. And like, for example, if you ask conservatives, they would say that the non-racist thing is to be colorblind. Like they genuinely, sincerely believe that if they ignore race, that's the right thing to do. That's the moral thing to do. Um, And that that is being, you know, non-racist. But then you ask a liberal and they say like, being colorblind or pretending to be colorblind is one of the most racist things you could do. And so like, if you don't like, how can you evaluate whether something's racist when there's no objective truth about it and like people disagree so strongly? Here in this case, I think what the like disagreement probably hinges on the like, rift between institutional racism as being like the definition, the working definition of racism is, um, or like the Kendi kind of definition of anything that leads to a disparity in uh, between races or like any kind of system that leads to one race being better off than the other is racist versus the view that it's more of like a personal racism of if you, you know, say I hate black people or you're like mean to someone because they're black, then you're being racist. But like, anyway, so like, you know, there's these different perspectives. And I think that people in academia and especially like progressive people have decided that like their definitions of racism are the objective correct ones. 
And according to those definitions, maybe this is racist. It's, you know, it's advancing one perspective more than the other. It seems to me, it seems like it's by a little bit more biased towards the Hummel and, you know, the reviewers and against Roberts. And so in the, in the sense that, you know, Roberts is arguing for more diversity and uh, then you could construe it as being racist. But I think reasonable people, moral, non-racist people can disagree and say, this is not racist. He was not treating him that way because of his race. He wasn't like doing this with the articles because he doesn't want black people in academia. It's just like a thing that he was, you know, a whatever mistake or um, ideological disagreement that's not necessarily racist. I, I think we'll come back to, you know, these differences that you outlined between U.S. conservatives and liberals um, also characterize differences between many Europeans and Americans. So, you know, the official policy of many European governments is colorblindness, right? Germany doesn't collect statistics on the race of its citizens at all. Um, I think the thinking being the last time that the government started making lists of racial minorities, that it didn't go well. Um, in France, I've been told it's actually illegal to ask people their race. Uh, and this was when we were fielding a survey. One of the co-authors is like, whoa, whoa, you can't actually legally ask that in France. I don't know whether that's true or not. I haven't checked that. But certainly they're sensitive about being asked about race and consider it to be unusual in a way um, that American progressives don't. And I mean, I, I think, you know, taking this view seriously, so I mean, obviously we're all familiar with the arguments about, you know, caring about race, that you can't discover racial disparities um, in treatment or outcomes unless you ask about race. Um, and how are you going to know that some groups are disadvantaged if you close your eyes to the fact that there are, you know, people belong to different groups? And I think that's a morally compelling and powerful argument. On the other hand, I think the European side is like, we've experienced literally a thousand years of sectarian conflict, some quite recently, right? If you think of like uh, Bosnia in the 90s, and this is all about people identifying with their subnational group, ethnic group or religious group or whatever, and not with a nation. And so what we're going to do as much as possible and try is try and promote a view of people as like, we're all Germans or we're all French and we're all Europeans, because we've seen that there's just disastrous consequences to people becoming too identified with these subgroups, i.e. they start fucking killing each other. And like, I can see the moral power of that argument too, right? I see where they're coming from. And I think I'm editorializing a little bit, but one thing I would love from Americans who are very steeped in a specific culture and often don't really encounter people who think differently unless they're the political enemy to have a little bit of intellectual humility about, yeah, you know, people will, people of good conscience will feel differently than you do. And if we ignore that, then we become even more parochial and insular. And I, I think I do want to get into like the US versus European angle on this, but that does sort of play into that. The Americans kind of hegemonically enforcing their moral norms on everybody else. Yeah. So what do you, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that it's racist? I don't think there's any evidence for racial bias kind of explicitly. Um, I don't see any reason to think that 
Fiedler was racially motivated. He may have been ideologically motivated, although I don't really think of him as an ideologue either. Like, he's not a Lee Justin. You know, he's not out there, you know, talking about wokeness in academia or anything like that. So I had kind of a low prior on that. Um, I, I think that maybe, so I read the Roberts commentary pretty carefully. And the kind of concrete example that he talks about of racism is not the process, but it's Lee Jussum's mules versus horses thing. So, so, so he, that's, that's what he actually, like when he uses the word racist, that's what he's talking about that specifically. So do you want to explain what this mules versus horses thing is? Sure. Um, okay. So Lee Jessam in his commentary, um, started it out with a quote from Fiddler on the Roof about being promised a horse and getting a mule. Uh, I don't remember the context of it in Fiddler on the Roof, but it's been a while since I've seen Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it was part of the song tradition, I think, but you know, it's been a while for me too. Um, so yeah, that was like the starting quote. And then Lee Justin used that analogy at like throughout the paper to talk about the different ways that people talk about diversity and what it means and, um, where like there's one sense of diversity that's like all inclusive and there's all these types of diversity. Um, and you know, it includes ideological and, and everything else. And then there's, and that's like the horse. This is my understanding. I might be wrong about this. Um, but then the mule is like, you know, just like increasing representation of black uh, authors or participants or whatever. Um, is that, did I get that right? Yeah. So that's definitely what he says at the beginning. He's like, well, you know, people say diversity um, and they rely on the listener assuming this broader meaning, but actually they mean the narrower thing, which is caring about demographics and and nothing else. But then there's some slippage with the metaphor later, where it sounds like the horse is like scientific research, like good science. And the mule is like political advocacy fused with the with the good science. Right. So he's like, I, I think at one point he says, you know, Mules are hybrids between donkeys and horses. And likewise, in Roberts's commentary, there's some things that are scientific and positive, but there's also some things that are like advocacy and bad. And that's why it's a mule. Okay. Yeah. So like, he's kind of like just using the same metaphor to like mean different things. And I mean, it felt like, what he was trying, he was trying to like talk about Mott and Bailey, like where, you know, like you say like one thing, but, yeah. but then like, why wouldn't you just use those words that like people sort of know what they mean um, instead of whatever. Anyway, it was this metaphor that worked on a bunch of different levels, I guess, for, you know, talking about different um, critiques, but it was all like a metaphor. Um, and then Roberts seemed to like take it very literally as if Lee Justin was literally like saying that black people are mules, basically. Yeah. So here's, here's the part that I think gave him that impression. This is just a quote from the Justin piece. Okay. 
To be sure, if some psychologists in some fields wish to devote extra effort and attention to samples of color, I have no objection. Special attention to samples of color deserves a place in psychological science. Let's not pretend, however, that such samples are somehow inherently scientifically more rigorous than ones that more closely approximate the demographics of the underlying population. Scientists who wish to plow their fields with mules should be permitted to do so. They should not, however, pretend that those mules are horses or suggest that, unless others give up their horses, they are doing something scientifically suboptimal. End quote. So that does kind of sound like it's like the non-white participants that are the mules. It, yeah, I agree. It does sound like that. It sounds bad, right? Yeah. And like my first, the way I like heard about this was just seeing this quote, like before I knew any of the other contexts. And I was like, you're like, yeah, what, the like shit, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 But then, and, oh, right, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just, I feel like the, the context of like the whole, the rest of the paper and the quote and like you, like understanding that it's part of a larger narrative and metaphor. And like, for me, at least it was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. Like he wasn't comparing black people to mules. Yeah. So I, I feel the same way. And, you know, I know, and likely and I don't think that he's a vicious racist. And so that obviously like affects my judgments here as well. But I can also see how somebody who like, I, I honestly didn't know this kind of racist trope about black people being mules at all. But like, let's say you do, you're more sensitive to that. And I can see how this passage would like really upset you in the same way that I'm like, Okay, so there's a fantasy book series that I really like. I'm not going to say too much of it because spoilers, but one of the plot points is that there's this organization that controls the bank and also secretly the government. And I'm like, as a Jewish person, I'm like, I don't think this guy is like an anti but it's a little, little weird, right? Like yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little weirded out by that. Um, and I can see how, you know, you just, these things push a button for you, right? And And you might find it, really upsetting to read this, even if you're like, well, the guy probably didn't mean it, but still. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, but like, so I, I kind of like, I understand all the people on Twitter who were like, yeah, this is not okay. This is fucked up. Like, Lee Justin, what are you doing? Because, you know, they hadn't, who takes the time to actually read things. But, yeah. <laughs> but Stephen Roberts, he presumably read Lee Justin's like commentary because he's responding to it. And like any good faith reading of that article of that commentary, it's like obvious that that's not what he's doing. And I feel like Roberts was being a little disingenuous. So he was like, cause he was saying, I'm, I'm trying to give Lee Justin the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I'm sure he didn't mean it, but, and then he like has these like, long paragraphs talking about the connection, the historical connection between uh, calling you know, black people mules and like all that stuff. And it's like, I don't know, like if you are giving him the benefit of the doubt, why are you dragging all this stuff into the commentary? Yeah. Yeah. I Here's something where I feel like a kind of a more balanced peer review process of the commentaries would really have helped because if I had been reviewing this thing, I probably would have said like, Lee, I get what you're saying, but this is like, 
take out the racist stuff, it's also kind of insulting, like in a way that's needless, right? It's like, oh, your research is like the inferior hybrid. You know, that's that's just like not nice and not necessary. And you don't, the metaphor is just kind of like, it, it's muddled and it gets confusing. I would say just take it out. Yeah. I, I agree about taking out the metaphor. I don't, I disagree about needing to be nicer. <laughs> I mean, Oh, I like, I, well, I mean, there's a difference between being nice and, you know, pulling your punches scientifically. But if it's just like, if it's just rhetorical heat, then like, what does that add? Like, it's just, if it's just a gratuitous insult. Yeah. And I mean, there's something to be said about like, it's just putting people off and they're not going to read it and take it seriously because, yeah. Right. And, you know, I mean, I, I do, like I said, uh, I like Lee. He's, he's a former guest. I think that he means well. But this does now kind of enable him to say, look at these crazy wokes. I used a quote from Fiddler on the Roof, and now they're accusing me of being a racist. And look how crazy they are, right? And he gets to like rile up his people that way and look like the victim. And it just doesn't seem productive at all. Yeah. Like if this is a dispute about, you know, how to do good science, like this is a distraction from all that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I think... They're probably both uh, to blame for for it getting derailed in this way, but yeah, uh, obviously, I mean, I think we should have not put that metaphor in, but also Robert shouldn't have like highlighted it and singled it out and like talked about how racist it is. Um, but then, like the broader thing of everyone calling Fiedler racist, like. And, you know, the APS and, and all the open letter. And, like, if it was just the mule thing, I think it would have been targeted more towards Lee Jessen than, like, Fiedler and the whole process. So I, I think that it – I don't know if I agree with you that it's just this thing that is the reason that, you know, racism was brought up. Yeah, I I guess I wasn't trying to claim that. I guess all I was saying was like in the Roberts piece specifically, that is the specific thing that he mentioned. But then that transmutes sort of in the public reaction to a much broader accusation of racism against everybody involved, right? So in the open letter um, and in the APS, the initial APS statement, although then note later, they don't come back to that, right? So they talk about this process stuff, but they don't say anything about their initial mention of racism, they just sort of quietly drop it, which I think is part of the reason that Fiedler's um, friends and defenders are are upset. Um, okay, so I think right now I need to go grab a second beer. How are How is your disgusting wine cooler thing? <laughs> it's not disgusting. Um, it's all right. I, I can grab my second one and uh, put this one aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe the second one will be an improvement. <laughs> Like a meteor, I'll glow, glow, glow. Ooh, lay your 
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, if you'd rather email us, the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Our website is fourbeers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there as well if you'd like. If you're enjoying the show, please just take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show. And also, we really enjoy reading our reviews. So with that, uh, Rachel, what have you replaced your drink with? Okay. So I really like taste testing, but when you do taste testing, you can't mix up too many variables at the same time. True. So I have the same brand, but it is a Southern peach flavor. Oh boy. That to me does not sound like an upgrade, but you know, let's, let's we'll roll the dice. what happens. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I've uh, got another beer from the same uh, brewery uh, dispensary, um, and this is a smoked, it's like a smoked malt beer, um, which sounded intriguing. It's called Fume San Fu, uh, Smoke Without Fire. So yeah, I'm going to crack that open. Whoa, this is super weird. It's almost like, it doesn't quite taste like smoke, it tastes like well, fish or soy sauce or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, yours it's, sounds it's way worse than mine. Better than it sounds like, I'll say. How is yours? Mine is actually good. It tastes like peach iced tea. That's oh. like bubbly. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a win. All right. Well, oh, oh that's got a weird aftertaste. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I may have made a mistake <laughs> with this. One. I'm going to keep at it and we're going to see where we end up. Okay. Yeah. So before the break, um, we were talking about, you know, what happened at Perspectives? What was the APS's handling of the situation like? What reasons did they give for uh, demanding Fiedler's, the editor's retirement? And what I'd like to talk about now is just kind of what was the reaction like in the uh, psychological science community more broadly. So the first thing that happened kind of immediately was uh, a letter to APS that was written that Friday, so the same day uh, that the Roberts preprint came out, that eventually had like 1,400 signatories that really denounced Fiedler in extremely strong terms and basically, among other things, demanded that he be fired post-haste. Um, and yeah, there's just a ton of people that I know and like who who signed this letter. Um, and to me, the idea of calling for his firing rather than an investigation or an exploration of what happened seems like a lot. Um, and in fact, I saw some people who said on Twitter, yeah, I signed the letter, but uh, this was on Monday. How can they have investigated it thoroughly, you know, over the weekend? It's like, but dude, you didn't call for an investigation. You called for him to be fired and they did that. Like, what are you fucking complaining about, right? Like, they did what you wanted. So I don't know how many people signed this, maybe not literally endorsing all of it, signing it to say, like, I think that, like, racism in the field is a problem. Or mm -hmm. I like Stephen Roberts and I think that he was treated badly and I'm going to sign this letter to support him. Or even a bunch of my friends are signing it. So I'm going to sign it too. So it it seems like you kind of had an experience um, along those lines, Rachel. Yeah, I, th I think that the whole like social pressure thing is definitely a major factor. So 
for any listeners of uh, more of a comment than a question, uh, my podcast. Um, last year, there was a whole fiasco with um, an email being sent about the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and I got upset about it um, because they were like advocating for like they were basically doing like political advocacy on the grad student listserv, and I thought that was inappropriate, so I responded, whatever. Um, that whole thing died down. But then I got this email on December 5th, so it's like Monday, um, you know, a few days after the open letter started, and it was addressed to all the grad students saying, basically, you know, diversity is really important, and like Dr. Roberts was treated unfairly and the DEI com like committee is encouraging you to sign this open letter. And it was sent to all of the grad students. And I, my immediate reaction was like, I need to reply all again. And yeah. <laughs> did you, I did not because you've learned something. I have, I've learned that uh, people really don't like it when you, disagree with them and um like it did i mean like it actually did a lot of damage to my social life here in the program and uh like i have felt increasingly isolated because of that you know my response to that email and how people reacted to it really so that's had like a an actual tangible social cost for you yeah, definitely. Like people were telling me about how other people were all talking shit about me and like, and, and, but you know, they wouldn't say exactly who. So I'm kind of like walking around campus, like looking around thinking that everyone hates me. And, and, and just to be clear for people who don't obsessively listen to your podcast, like I do, <laughs> it's not like you were like Kyle Rittenhouse is a great guy and definitely should have shot those people, right? Like you weren't taking some like crazy, you know, right wing position. No, I was just, I wasn't, I was just trying to say like, I don't think that the grad school, like, I don't think that the department or like anyone in a position of power should be like advocating political positions to grad students and kind of like telling us what we should be thinking and doing and how we should be reacting to things that happen in the world. Yeah. Like, it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's, stating like this is the norm and you should be following it and like I right don't know. <laughs> so your argument was more about process and principles and not about the specifics of this case yeah yeah see i i wish that people would kind of admit that we do a lot of enforcing of ideological conformity i mean literally here's like you're a grad student and people are like talking shit about you because you in a very mild way push back on something that's being sent out on a department-wide listserv about a touchy political issue. It's like, I feel like people are in such fucking denial about how we're doing this as a field. And I would like them to just sit in a room with you and tell you to your face, oh yeah, no, that, that doesn't happen. Or they're just complainers. It's like, that's bullshit. Yeah. I mean, and the, like what they say, what they people have said to me is, oh, it's not the fact that you disagreed. It's the way you did it. But it's like, oh, you're allowed to do tone policing to me, but like, you know, when you do it to other people, it's not okay. And like, you know, whatever. Anyway, we're not, we're not here to talk about all that. All of this stuff is so fucking unprincipled. And like, I mean, I, it, it's just from a research perspective, I shouldn't be surprised about any of it. 
but from like a personal and human perspective, I'm like, be better. Kind of expect the psychologists who are studying these phenomena of like conformity and like social pressure and all that stuff, like to know better and to do better. Yeah. And yet. So anyway, you you have learned from the previous experience. Yeah, you did not write back. I did not, but I was upset about it. Um, and when I came across the opposing open letter, I signed that one. And I don't I don't know if I necessarily did the right thing there. I think I kind of like acted very quickly and. Um, kind of like knee-jerk reaction of, of thinking, oh, there's all this like supporters saying that he should get fired and, you know, that he should, they're also saying like whatever Stephen Roberts wants, he should get. There was just like a blanket, like, you know. Oh, weird. <laughs> what if he wants Fiedler to be publicly flogged, right? Is that <laughs> yeah. what's on the table? They were just like, you know, whatever measures he sees fit, we should like go with that. And And so then I was like, signing this anti-letter saying like, no, there should be due process and like we should actually investigate what happened and not jump to conclusions right away and all that. Um, I didn't agree with everything that the anti-letter said, but um, yeah, I, I just felt like it's not, it's not okay to just pile on and, and like join the mob and we should be like thinking we should just like slow down, you know? Yeah, I, I did not sign either letter just generally because I don't like to sign open letters. If Julia Rohr proposed on Twitter an open letter against open letters, I might have signed on to that one if it were real. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so I didn't. Um, but I'm, you know, sympathetic, obviously, to the idea that due process is important and that we should hear from both sides and that maybe you shouldn't make a decision over the weekend uh, to fire the editor-in-chief of one of your important journals. Uh, so one thing that we've brought up already kind of in passing is the national origin of the people signing each of the letters. So this isn't obviously 100%, but it's very much the case that uh, the anti-Fiedler letter, which about 1,400 people signed, the overwhelming majority of that is North Americans. Whereas the letter saying you know, hey, slow down, due process, let's give the guy a hearing, is way more international and specifically like a lot of Israelis, a lot of Europeans. So some of that, I think, reflects um, where Fiedler has friends, you know, people who know and like him, who have professional connections with him, who think highly of him. But I also, I think some of that reflects just the differences in thinking about race and accusations of racism between North American progressives Maybe you could say Anglophone progresses because I think this is like pretty common in Canada and, and um, the UK as well and the rest of the world, right? And the um, kind of uh, defense of Fiedler open letter or defense of due process open letter kind of said as much, said like, okay, you're accusing him of, him of racism. Well, like, what does that actually mean? And kind of went into that a little bit. And it felt like a very kind of different approach to uh, thinking about race and racism versus what the Americans were saying. Yeah, I had not been aware of this divide at all. Um, I I just assumed like that it was a networking effect kind of thing that just like, you know, it started in Europe and then the Europeans all know each other. So it like circulated within them and the Americans all know each other. But 
but people, you know, have pointed out this divide. And yeah, I think that it's interesting. And it's interesting that Fiedler was hired because he's like European and, you know, they're trying to bring more diversity. And then it's like, no, but you can't think differently about racial issues. That's that's where we draw the line. Yeah. So I wonder about the consequences of this longer term. And I think you're right to say like a lot of this is social, right? I don't, I don't at all want to underrate the importance of social connections. And I think perhaps the APS leadership didn't consider or underrated the extent to which Fiedler is really well-liked by people who know him. And I've heard this myself, like people who say, well, I feel like he didn't handle this well, but he's just really a great fair-minded guy who tries to treat people well. Like, I think he had a, like a deep reservoir of goodwill among the people who knew them, him. And those people are now outraged because they view him as being, having been thrown under the bus. Uh, so there's an absolutely scorching email written by Joachim Kruger, who's at Brown. He's a JDM, um, cognitive psych person, social cognition, maybe German originally, uh, who just he was involved with APS. He was um, an associate editor at Perspectives. He resigned all of those positions and basically told them to go, told them to go fuck themselves. Like very, he was, it was clear he was extremely angry. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, and I wonder whether this is going to cause like a larger rift between the Europeans and the Americans, right? So the Europeans already again, this is not everybody, but I'm just generalizing, feel like the field is so U.S.-centric. You know, APS never holds their conference even in Canada, as far as I know, right? Even going north of the border to Toronto is like, oh, that's a bridge too far. And let alone Europe or, or further afield. Um, almost all of the editors at APS journals have been North Americans. And in general, the Europeans feel like dismissed and ignored to some extent, I think, by the Americans who assume that they're the center of the universe. And there's like a lot of resentment against the hegemons. I mean, who fucking likes the hegemon, right? And and, and now to, on top of all of that, to be lectured by like these, you know, as they see it, moral grandstanders, I think they're angry and resentful. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were like, screw you, APS, we're going to do our own thing. And I wonder if one unintended consequence of this is going to be just like less collaboration between American and European psychologists and just more divergence in professional societies and journals and all of that stuff. If they're like, we're going to set up our parallel system. We can't deal with these crazy Americans anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that like what I'm what I've been thinking about is the extent to which psychology needs to be universal. I think this was like sort of a sort of recurring theme in Robert's paper and, and Hummel's critique and like, um, but also in the letters and in this like divide between US and Europe. And it's like, on the one hand, we want to think that we're coming up with these like universal truths about human nature. But on the other hand, like we really, you know, our samples are mostly weird, Western educated, all that stuff. Um, and there's only so much that we can do to like expand what we're doing and, and include all the like as much diversity as we can. And I just wonder sometimes like 
maybe it would be better to just like limit it to psychology of Americans or of like Western, uh, like, you know, uh, people. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't sound that impressive. Right. If you're like, Oh, we're doing psychology of, uh, early 21st century Americans. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound impressive, but like that is what we're doing. It's right? more honest. Yeah, exactly. Like de facto, that's obviously what we're but, doing. But like also that's what, I mean, I feel like that's what we actually care about. I don't know if this is too much of a tangent, but like, you know, like if we're living in the U.S. or Canada or, you know, whatever, each country, we care about how people are doing and like their well-being, how they react to things like political stuff, all the all the things that people study in the context of where you live, you know, like why should we care about like universal human nature if then there's like these like moderators? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is like very focused on not o only, you know, North Americans in a specific time, but also like a specific subset of those people often. I do think that like that's just less satisfying. Like you really do want to be discovering universal principles and not, you know, how people think in a certain place and time, if only because that knowledge then goes out of date, right? If you're like, oh, we did the psychology of Americans in the 1950s and now none of that is relevant anymore because it's no longer the 1950s. Like what's, it just seems kind of pointless. And that's, I think, why we aspire to more breadth, even if we don't, in practice, even if like what we're doing is exactly that, right? We like to tell ourselves that we're doing something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, but there's always going to be, well, I don't know about always, but it seems like right now there there is this divide, um, not just, I mean, I think Europeans and Americans are more similar than to like all the Eastern countries, or like non-Western. Um, and like, where it doesn't seem like people are doing anything to include um, the whole world, you know, into like, the journals and articles, publications and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's movement in that direction that I think is promising. Um, so the psych science accelerator, this international network of labs, they run stuff all over the world. Um, and they've had a lot of success at, uh, placing papers in <laughs> to bring ourselves around to where we started in, in high impact journals, mm -hmm. um, journals that you'll be, be excited about. Um, SIPS, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. I, I don't know if it's their next conference or the one after that is going to be in Kenya. Um, the first conference ever that I've heard of outside of uh, the Americas or Europe. Um, so, well, okay, no, wait, Israel, Israel, that that's outside, that counts. But <laughs> yeah, America's Europe and Israel. So, I mean, this stuff is like kind of gradually happening. I mean, it's been decades since Henrik wrote about the weirdest people in the world, right? And it it just like is taking a long time um, to penetrate in terms of like what people are actually doing. But I do kind of hope that we're headed in that direction. There's obviously a ton of challenges that go along with that, that I don't think we've really started grappling with yet, but I guess I'm a little more optimistic than you that we can kind of go in that direction of being actually like a global science that describes everybody, not just Western undergrads. Yeah. 
Well, if I mean, if that is going to happen, then I think that the focus on race in the like American context is so like irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, right? Like, it's it's just it's just not. Um, and so, like, ha- those things seem to be really intention, right? Like, on one hand, people wanting to just diversify psychology as much as possible, include all these different countries and, and different cultures. But on the other hand, also like really focus on race in the US and like race isn't a relevant construct in most other countries. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Or, or at least they think about it really differently than Americans do. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, compared to, uh, almost exclusively white undergrad samples, you know, yeah. If you look at like samples that are more representative of America, that's an improvement, but it's still like, you know, they're all Americans and they're definitely going to be more similar to each other than people in like, let's say Africa versus East Asia. And I think we should aspire to more, right? We should aspire to be globally representative in our, in, in the, people that we involve in our research and, and also in the researchers. And then, you know, then also you get kind of racial diversity for free in that, right? Most people in the world are not white. And if we're more globally representative, we're going to be less white as a discipline. So if you're really excited about being less white as a discipline, great, you get that too. So, okay. I think we've done this topic justice. Uh, Rachel, I will plug your podcast for you. If you would like more of Rachel's thinking about all sorts of interesting topics. Check out more of a comment than a question co-hosted with Paul Connor. Uh, we will drop a link to that in the show notes. Rachel, anything else of yours that you would like to plug? Are you on the job market? Should they read a paper of yours? What do you want our audience to know about? <laughs> I should have prepared for that. Um, no, I'm not on the job market because I don't like academia because of all the stuff that we've talked about and much more. Um, well, that's that's our loss, and I'm I'm sad to hear. Do you, <laughs> do you know what you're doing, or I am currently I have a part time job at Cloud Research, and I will probably hopefully continue there after I graduate. Um, but we'll see what happens. And, oh, that's awesome! Yeah. Important question: Can you get me a discount? Well, I'm connect. You can have zero fees for 30 days from when you sign up. So Wow. I'm going to check that out the next time I have a big study. To re- I, I swear they're not giving us any money, although they ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so I, I like um, working, you know, not in academia. It's, it's, it's good times. Um, but check out my recent review paper in Nature Human Behavior on political polarization. I guess I could plug that. Um, and yeah, I guess if anyone's still on Twitter, follow me. <laughs> I'm I'm a Twitter diehard. I'm going to be there till it burns to the ground. And we will put a link to that paper in our show notes as well. Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs>